Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello everyone, and a very warm welcome to this conversation with UK Information Commissioner Elizabeth Denham. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, Director of the Institute. Before we kick off, some really brief housekeeping. We're going to be live tweeting from IFG events using the hashtag IFG Denham. Please follow and tweet along. Please do send in your questions for Elizabeth as early as you like. That does mean from now. If you give your name and where you're viewing from, it's always great to see that. And you can post your questions in the panel just to the right of your screen. And we're going to have a video and sound recording on our website within 24 hours, thanks to the terrific IFG team. Well, by way of introduction, Elizabeth has been the UK Information Commissioner since 2016 and is now coming right to the end of her five-year term. She was appointed after several years in regulatory roles in Canada, mainly focused on privacy rights, including six as Information and Privacy Commissioner for British Columbia. She's moving on from the Information Commissioner's office at a particularly interesting moment, not only after this extraordinary 18 months that we've had and all the implications that that has had for information rights and indeed for health data, but also because of the department's ongoing consultation on the draft national data strategy, the department being DCMS, and that consultation is due to close in November and has a lot of implications for the Information Commissioner's Office. With all that in mind, we're going to start off with Elizabeth laying out some brief thoughts, which she has, I'm sure, been uh, been simmering for the five years, but has brought together for this event. And uh, she's obviously now preparing to hand over to the new information commissioner and no doubt has some even more private tips in mind. We'll then, uh, she and I get into a brief conversation and we'll answer questions from you, which again, do start sending in as soon as you want. So Elizabeth, really warm welcome and over to you. Thank, thanks very much for that introduction, Bronwyn, and I'm I'm very happy to be here, relatively unplugged to talk to you this afternoon. So, um, in terms of my prepared remarks, what really stands out for me as I reflect on the last two years is the pace of change, and we know that data protection had really come out of the shadows before the pandemic. During the pandemic, the value of data protection, discussions about privacy and data protection really shone through. When I think back over the last 20 months though, I have two observations. The first is that the principle-based approach that we have in our law had the flexibility that we needed when we needed it. So we didn't have to change the law to implement nationwide track and trace systems or to allow for data sharing that need to happen between government agencies and with the commercial sector. So the law worked the way that we intended it to. My second observation is that where the law works best or perhaps where organizations best understand the law was where they considered people's views front and center to a new service or a new intervention. So we saw data protection and privacy considered from the very start of the development of proximity tracing apps, for instance, and across all the nations of the UK, 
governments recognize the value of good data protection in encouraging public trust and public take up of apps and also the urgency with which it needed to be considered. And I was extraordinarily proud of my team who really stepped up to support this work. And at times we felt like we were working in a field hospital of advice and guidance on all these new services, all these new applications in public health surveillance. We saw in the pandemic that data protection is an enabler, encouraging people to trust innovation by showing that their views were being respected. And, and that's not a new idea. In the time that I've worked in data protection, going on three decades now, the cases on my desk have changed. Questions about physical filing systems, we don't get those anymore. Now we get questions on aspects of transparency and artificial intelligence, big data and algorithms. Those are the things we're being asked about today. But the value of respect for people's privacy, respect for people's data, that's consistent. Today's data-driven innovations have the potential to change tomorrow's society. But that only happens if people, if society buy into those technical advances. So we know that AI and algorithms rely on the data that's fed into them to produce world-changing results, world-changing outputs, that come out the other end. But if people mistrust those outputs, bias, unfairness, discrimination, or just opaque decision-making, then people will start to resist or people will block the use of their data. And, and we've seen some of this nervousness around data-driven innovation already in the public sector. So the opportunities for life-changing innovation are huge in the health sector, for example, in a publicly paid healthcare system. But people are concerned about their, the use of their data where the explanation of the processing is unclear. And many of you in the audience today will remember that that was one of the crucial learnings of the care.data initiative and also the recent public pushback against the government's plans for harvesting gp patient data which is called the gpdpr central to public trust is legislation with people at its center and a CDEI study earlier this year really caught my eye because the study showed that the single bit, biggest predictor of when somebody believed in the role of digital innovation in response to the pandemic was not their level of concern about the pandemic, not their age, not their education, it was trust in the rules and the regulation governing the technology. People expected someone to have their back. 
And that makes the government's consultation underway right now about potential reforms to data protection law very well timed. The opportunities for digital innovation rely on trust in the law. How we deliver those high standards of data protection cannot be static. But no matter how technology evolves, any future legislative and people's trust at the center. So the opportunities of digital innovation and high data protection standards are two sides of the same coin. Innovation is enabled by high data protection standards. And I'm deeply concerned about any changes to the data protection regime that would remove the centrality of fairness in how people's data is used. So if we think specifically about AI and algorithms, I call on the government to reassess their proposal, which is based on the Tigger report, to remove the requirement for fairness and the right for human intervention of automated decisions. And I believe that removing the requirement for fairness in decisions made by machines risks losing public trust in technologies that offer so much and so many opportunities to society. So Bronwyn, before we move to a discussion in Q&A, I just wanted to touch on the other side of my mandate, freedom of information and transparency. And the last time that I spoke to the IFG was in February of 2019, when I discussed my view that the Freedom of Information Act should be extended to cover the works and contracts that are contracted out to the private sector. So when the private sector is standing in the shoes of the public sector, the act. And our push for that recommendation was put on the back burner during the pandemic. And instead, we had to focus on a more fundamental aspect of transparency. And that is of record keeping or the preservation of records of important government decisions. Recording information and allowing access to that information is more important than ever over the past 20 months. The duty to document doesn't cease in a crisis, but in fact, I would argue it becomes even more important. And that's why the suggestion that ministers and senior officials using private correspondence channels, such as personal email accounts or encrypted messaging is a concerning one. So are these historic decisions being made go unrecorded on government networks? And if so, how can we scrutinize and how can we learn from those decisions? The practice of private communication channels being used to conduct government parliamentary business is not a new issue for my office. The ICO and successive governments, the National Archives, have all really emphasized the principle of transparency around government decision-making. 
So good record keeping gives our Freedom of, of Information Law Foundation and something that I know that the IFG is supportive of. So that's, that's just a, a brief tour of the notable files on my desk, Bronwyn, and uh, I'm happy to chat with you and hopefully take questions from the audience. Thank you. Absolutely. Elizabeth, thanks indeed for that. Absolutely fascinating. You've taken us, you know, a whole panorama of the coronavirus to WhatsApp, in fact, where, where you're ending up, and, and to the possibilities of innovation that lie there tantalizing if we can get the legislation right and, and people's trust sufficiently high. I want to start with really where you started off, which is the pandemic. And it is extraordinary 18 months of incredible government intrusiveness into what we all did, which we would have all found unthinkable um, before, before it happened. It, actually, a lot of public support for it. So I just want to be absolutely clear whether you think that the data protection on how people's data was used during the pandemic was adequate. I'm thinking particularly of the location data that you were talking about, where people were, they could be fined if they're in the wrong place and they'd done the wrong thing. So was, was, was the protection adequate? Do we need more protection to come through this consultation that's going on now? I, I think what's really important, as I said, is the principle-based law works because all those old chestnuts of fairness and transparency and proportionality that are required in law made the law flexible enough to adjust to the collection of QR codes, the proximity, the proximity tracking apps. Um, the the vaccination certificates so all these things that we weren't used to doing bars and restaurants collecting our contact details as as we as we walked in the door those are as you said extraordinary for us to think that this much data was being would be collected that said um, our office could give advice we helped critique and scrutinize the design of the government's contact tracing apps. We have commented on vaccine certification. And I think that's really important that the regulator got in there to look at how privacy was being designed into these systems. But now, Bronwyn, our work really starts because We've just finished an audit of the test and trace system and the results of that will be coming out. The other thing that I think for the next commissioner will be to examine the stickiness of some of these surveillance measures going forward. So I'm I'm interested in how these systems are going to be decommissioned mm -hmm. in the future yeah. and whether some of the collection of that data and the use of the data is going to be something that the government wants to retain. The most important question will be what people think about the trust in the continued collection of data, because that it doesn't seem to be consistent with British values that we're going to be tracked everywhere we're going. Absolutely. And I wondered where you thought public trust was at the moment. That's a complicated question, I think. Um, as I said, the survey that CDEI released a few weeks ago showed that people were nervous unless they understood that there was a law and regulation and a well-resourced regulator to take action when, when the government wasn't playing by the rules. And I, so I think it's really, really important. 
But I, I will say that during the pandemic, people were more relaxed in general about providing their information if they could understand and if the government's use of that data was transparent. So mm -hmm. transparency and fairness and having decisions explained yes. is really, really critical to the trust. And it's easy to lose trust. Yeah. Right? It takes a long time to gain it and it's easy to lose it. And the point you made that people um, are assuming at the moment that this is, this is all going to be switched off in some sense, that they will want uh, re-persuading perhaps if it's going to go on for a long time. I'm not asking you to spoil the uh, the findings of your own uh, report on test and trace. There's obviously an enormous amount of interest in test and trace. Uh, the House of Commons um, reporting on, on that at the moment. Um, but is it your feeling that the protection for people was basically adequate and that there are all kinds of issues with test and trace, including one of incentives. People don't always want to be um, no. traced if they got to stay at home. There's basic issues of incentive that are nothing to do with trust or data protection. But did you feel that the data protection bit, bit of it worked? I think that there, were, there are some learnings in the way that the test and trace program was. I mean, it, it was, it, it had to be built in a very short period of time. People had to be trained. You can see that systems weren't weren't working right at the very beginning and the kind of training and the kind of security and protection of the data is, yeah. is an issue. But you know we are we finished our audit. Um, it's been presented to to the government to health and social care and we will expect them to respond to it in in the coming weeks. Hmm. Well thank you thank you for that. Um, Let's move uh, to the other big thing that happened in the in the past couple of years, which is Brexit. And I wondered if you could just take us through in simple terms how that has reshaped how um, our data is handled. Well, when I came into this role, Bronwyn, in 2016 and accepted it before the referendum vote, I thought I would have a quiet little job of just bringing in a new law, the GDPR. But the GDPR is an EU-based statute. So during the transition period, the UK copied it into UK law. So we have the UK GDPR, which has been deemed by the EU as essentially equivalent to the protections that exist in the EU. And why is that important? Thank goodness we received the adequacy decision because that means that data can flow, data of EU citizens can flow to the UK for business and public sector purposes without additional safeguards or transactional safeguards being put around that data. So our law, the UK GDPR and the Data Protection Act 2018 are deemed to be equivalent to the EU and, and that's really important for trade. Mm. However, it took some time to get there because we only received the adequacy finding in June of 2021. So it's it's very recent. But um, but no, there were there were lots of bumps along the way. And our office, I served on the European Data Protection Board, but with Brexit, UK authorities had to step away from those those boards and, and go it on our own, which we are doing in data protection terms. So no more one-stop shop in the EU. We have our own, our own um, 
responsibilities and mandate to take action against, for example, big tech. Mm. Mm. Okay, thank you for that. I'm looking actually at the flood of questions coming in. They're absolutely terrific ones. So I'm, I'm just going to ask you a couple more and then and then we'll get on to them. They're, they're spanning everything. Thank you, everyone. Um, I notice, I mean, maybe, um, in contrast to the subject we're discussing, more people than usual are describing themselves as anonymous, which seems unfortunate. Anyway, we'll come, we'll come back to that. It's a, it's a private audience. It, 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 well, it's not that private. I mean, I mean, it is private, but uh, we, we like to know um, who people are and if they want to say so. Let's, let's go to the Freedom of Information Act, um, through, which you mentioned in your opening remarks. And throughout your tenure, you've You've called on an extension of, of this, um, for example, of private companies on government contracts. Um, and our research shows that almost a third of government spending goes on this, these kind of external suppliers. Where have you got to with that one in particular and just pushing the boundaries of what freedom of information can extract from the government about how it operates? So a couple of things um, you referenced and I referenced in my opening remarks are um, our outsourcing oversight report that we tabled in Parliament a few years ago. And it was my intention after tabling that report to advocate and push and press mm. for the extension of the law. So we were looking for partners. We were looking for light minded organizations that could advocate for an, for an extension of the law. Mm. Some of that work had to be put on the back burner because of data protection challenges post Brexit and also the pandemic. But I think the scope of law should be reviewed because it doesn't reflect the way government services are delivered. Mm -hmm. The other thing that needs to happen is I think it's time to review the freedom of information law for the digital age. So in an age where we expect instant communication, I think waiting 28 days and then with an extension is not serving the public. So I think we need to look at that issue as well as the reality of how communication channels are used in government to make decisions. So the law may be clear on the use of private messaging to communicate government decisions is within the scope of the FOI law, but I think the culture of communication means that we need a debate about what is the public record and how that public record can be preserved. And that's for good public administration reasons, that's for scrutiny reasons, and it's also for historic reasons. Um, I am always thinking that's important including accountability. And so, for example, with WhatsApp or the use of private phones and so on, do, do, does your office have a view on whether those should be either open to freedom of information inquiries or that, that ministers should be told not to use them? So I think by telling by telling ministers and, and government officials not to use any private communication channels, I don't think that's reflective of the way that we live our lives. The no. law is clear. So if government decisions are made on a private communication channel or in a private email, that is caught by the law. However, how is the law going to be enforced? Does that mean we have to seize private phones to look at look for um, responses to FOI? That doesn't make sense to me. So I think we need to find a way to preserve important records 
Some jurisdictions have looked to creating a positive duty in law called a duty to document, mm -hmm. and that has been built into ministerial codes and public service codes, but it needs to be enforced and monitored by an independent agency. And I think that's the duty to document may put that positive duty on the shoulders of government officials, but mm -hmm. how do you actually monitor and make that work, Bronwyn? Mm. Um, no, very, very good question. What I'm discussing with my colleagues tomorrow, actually, and we, we have a paper coming out on. Let me ask you one final thing before we go to everyone's uh, general questions. I'm not actually going to ask you right the second about big tech companies because I can see lots of questions coming on that. Um, but I was wondering whether you were concerned about the future independence of the office that you've been holding and what whether anything needs to be done about it, including by your successor to protect that independence. I think you, you would have seen in our response to the government's consultation on data protection law reform, you would have seen that I had taken an, taken an issue, taken issue with the government's suggestion that the office, the office holder be appointed by government, for example, that guidance and codes that we drafted would need to be signed off by a secretary of state. And I think when it comes to the independence of the office, particularly this is an office that oversees government, we have to be free from political interference in our work. And I think the trust and confidence of the public in somebody having their back in independent regulation, someone who oversees FOI, this is all I think very important that the office remain independent. And I know there are many that share that view. Yep. Um, Thank you for that response. And let's let's go to the questions now, which I'm now um, looking at. And there's there's lots of them. Um, all right, let me start. Deborah Newton Cook in Brussels has said that when she reads press articles not hidden behind a paywall, you can't read the article unless you accept all cookies and or go and edit them, which um, which ones you're okay with, which she doesn't do. She's not alone in that because it's quite fiddly. Do you receive any complaints about misuse of data from this source of people just clicking that box, accept all cookies, and actually what that means for their data? I think that cookies, and again, the the oversight of electronic marketing is is not the Data Protection Act. It's it's PECR. Yeah. It's a different law, but we oversee it. I think um, cookies are sucking the joy out of browsing the internet. And I think everybody thinks that about cookies. So although it's important to get consent from individuals and in tracking them online, it needs to be meaningful. Yes. And the way cookie pop-ups and cookie banners are used, they're so frustrating that you have to so you have to accept or reject on a transactional basis with every website that you visit. So our proposal that um, our office put forward to the G7 consideration is to reform the cookie law, to reform the practice so that there would be a way to build your cookie preferences into browsers and software so that it would have some longevity and you wouldn't have to do that. So I'm looking for yeah. meaningful consent, Bronwyn. Not right. the kind of consent that comes from frustration and browsing the internet. Yeah, thank you for that. And that is also um, a good answer to part of the long question from 
Joanne Rossau in Wales, who uh, says that the data protection legislation, particularly in the case of subject access requests, seems to be hugely abused by organisations. Um, thank, thank you for that one. Um, all right, there's one saying the ICO appears overburdened. Comment. Does the UK need a national data commissioner like Australia to relieve pressure on the job that you've just been doing? I'm not I'm not sure what the National Data Guardian in Australia does, if that's a government uh, body or if that's a, a regulator. But I would agree with the question that we are we overburdened? We have 13 statutes that we oversee. Our mandate has expanded and I think will continue to expand. The fortunate thing is over the last five years, I've been able to build the capacity of the ICO. So not just in headcount, but in skills and experience. So we have an economic unit. We've hugely expanded our, our tech and innovation capacity in the office. We have a new fee regime um, that makes us, I think, a fit for purpose digital regulator. And I, I'm happy to be handing a fit for purpose digital regulator to John Edwards, who's going to be my successor. Mm. We've got some questions about what you should say to him later. Um, there are several questions about 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 Facebook and the big tech giants and, and holding them. And again, um, uh, Deborah and you can cook from Brussels. I, thank you for putting this very clearly. What other people have put more length. Um, she's saying we've not seen any prosecution of in individuals involved in the illegal harvesting of data by Cambridge Analytica through Facebook during the vote leave campaign in 2016. Um, People have a lot of concern about why should they have confidence in their data being protected? Um, and, and again, it goes to your early points on trust, but where does regulation of the big tech companies come into this question? So just, just to respond on the first point, um, yeah. Cambridge Analytica was prosecuted by yeah. our office and the directors were, were struck off the register. So there was action taken. The, the, country went, the company went into receivership. So we had their kit because we had seized their, um, their servers to do the investigation. We also fined Facebook the highest possible fine that we had in our toolkit at the time, which was um, 500,000 pounds, probably a measly amount for Facebook. But we now have fines up to 4% of global turnover. I think some of your audience will know that we have uh, an ongoing investigation with TikTok, which has, um, has raised a lot of allegation and concerns about children's privacy. And so we, we are conducting investigations into big tech now, but we have the the mandate and the authority now that we're outside of the EU to investigate and scrutinize these companies ourselves. So most of the companies operating in Europe used to be in Ireland for an and the Irish would be their lead supervisory authority. Thank you for that. And that's also a very good question. Uh, answer to another question that had come in anonymous this one, but uh, that person asking to what extent the UK's withdrawal from the EU completely changes the position of the ICO as it will, the question is saying, be able to independently investigate and go after big tech and the likes of Facebook, Twitter, Google without, you know, it goes on and I thank you. you I think you've just uh, you've anticipated and answered that one that you can do exactly, exactly that. Um, 
one from Alice Phoenix, uh, shout out UK. Uh, she feels that we've got a media literacy crisis in the UK. Many people, particularly young people, don't understand how their data is used. Um, her question is whether you think the government has a responsibility to increase user understanding of, of, and spell out or force companies to spell out how that data is used. I think if we're talking about children in particular, I think our kids code, the age appropriate design code, goes a long way to requiring companies to design their services likely to be accessed by children to make them transparent and to limit the way that data is shared. So I think that's an incredibly important regulation. But I agree with you, if we are going to raise good digital citizens, mm. then it's the responsibility of government, it's the responsibility of regulators, educators, communities, and I think families to be able to teach the kids to be safe online, but also to be able to be autonomous and to experiment online. Mm. So that's another thing I think is very good is a is a very strong component of our kids code. It recognizes that kids will be online and yeah. requires companies to take the responsibility to design services so that they work for kids. Thank you for that. Um, well, it's an interesting one, slightly different. Uh, anonymous, this one. Um, organizations disclose data breaches to the uh, to, to your office, to the Information Commissioner's office. Have you learnt anything from the range of breaches that you've seen? Yes, um, we also do. We also. Yeah, I'll tell you what it is, but I mean, we we investigate certain breaches when they they reach a, a, a certain threshold, and we take the breach reports and we turn them into. Um, a quarterly report. So if you look on our website, you'll see what our findings are in the, in the last quarter in terms of the root causes of data breaches. I am continuously disappointed by the lack of, I think, even the most basic cyber security arrangements in place in organizations. And uh, although people are very concerned about ransomware, and that is certainly on the, on the, the uptake, the the steps that need to be taken to just protect the back doors, um, the simple steps that need to be put in place to train staff on scam emails, etc. I think there's a lot more that could be done at the basic level to protect our networks. So not all of the breaches are due to sophisticated criminal gangs from around the world. So back to basics, I would say for organizations to just protect their networks. Really interesting point. Thank you very much indeed for that. OK, another one again, again, without a name, as I said, it's, it's a thing today. Um, you represent a fine tradition of Canadian citizens working for the UK government or for the UK. What advice would you give others coming from abroad to work in the British system? And your successor, of course, coming from New Zealand. Yeah, I was just going to say another Commonwealth country, um, another citizen, a Commonwealth citizen who's who's succeeding me in this role. There's I mean, I think governor of the Bank of England, and um, yeah. yeah, and and uh, and also the uh, the head of the the Royal Mail, um, Moya Jean. So, I think I think it says something about the openness of the British si system that they will consider individuals from other countries to lead their public institutions. 
I, I think Canadians have a, a special place in in the hearts of of my British colleagues. Maybe we're like the comfortable, safe cousins. I'm not sure. But Canada also has a really strong tradition of public service and strong public officials. So I've, I think it's great. And it's been it's been the greatest privilege of my professional life to serve in this in this position at this incredible time. OK, well, thank you for that. We go. There's a whole bunch of um, of, of uh, questions quite protective of your office asking whether you've got enough resources. Let me pick the one from Sean uh, McMullen, who says with a mandate for regulating big tech outside um, of the EDPB one stop shop, does the uh, the ICO have the resources it needs to deal with appeals and judicial review challenges from very big companies? And he's thinking of the, the kind of appeal by Amazon in Luxembourg at the moment. But there's a whole batch of questions here saying, do you really have the resources to take on big tech? I think no regulator, no public body or or public official would say that we have enough resources to do what we need to do. There is a day after the budget. Yep. <laughs> yeah, there is an inequality of arms here, though, which is to your questioner's point, and that is that big tech have big have deep pockets and are willing to litigate against offices like mine and to draw things out. Mm. So so we <clears throat> we have fining power, but we have no ability to retain any of those fines. Mm. Those go into general revenue. We have no ability to retain fines to pay for our own litigation costs. And that is an issue that I brought forward to government because it seems fair that if we have to litigate against the biggest companies in the world, the size of nation states, we also need the budget to be able to take on that litigation. So I think it's a challenge. I think our powers though, our powers are strong. We have extraterritorial reach. We have the ability to reach into cloud servers, to do no notice inspections, to be able to scrutinize algorithms. These are all modern powers for a digital regulator. But I take the point about resources. We have to be selective to be effective. And I think that's why we have to pick the biggest files, the most important files to be able to set the standards for entire industries or sectors. Mm. Thanks for that. OK, let's go one, one back to just identity and trust during coronavirus. One from Asha Titus of the LSE, uh, who says, thanks for flagging the importance of trust and data protection. Are there plans to de-link some of the data gathered for track, track and trace during the emergency? Is there a plan for what to do with all the health data harvested during these extraordinary times? Um, for example, a mechanism to opt out um, or for data subjects to go and ask to, to delete information held on them. And um, the question is saying that um, in the early stages, in order to get uh, a home test from the NHS, you had to confirm your identity using private credit rating service and so on. Uh, there were probably a lot of examples in there. But what, what about the, all right, does this switch off at some point? And, and what can people do to switch off the data if they want? So I think, I mean, there's a lot of detail in that question, but it seems yeah. to me that the question is around, is the pandemic a huge data grab that the government's then going to turn this data into an identity management system, an identity system, or use the data for secondary purposes once the pandemic is over? Do you think that's the nature of the question? 
Yes. And what can you do as an individual to say, OK, right, that was the emergency. I feel I've done my bit. What, what can I do to get the data on me deleted? I think it's I think it's really important to you can communicate with our office about concerns. You can communicate to government, but I can assure um, those that are listening in this afternoon that we are actively auditing um, the secondary uses or the the retention of data beyond the pandemic. Now you can see that there'll be an appetite to mm. hold on to certain data to be able to do significant public interest research, to do health research. And I think people would accept and expect that. But the most important thing, Bronwyn, is that the government's transparent, mm. that the public knows that somebody has their back and is looking into this. And all of those old chestnuts in the in the law about proportionality and transparency and data minimization, those those principles still work, mm. um, even in the context of a post pandemic uh, UK. Mm. Let's go to a pair that really about the culture of government and it's um lack of fondness for freedom of information requests. So there's one saying civil servants can see these requests as overly time consuming and and um, and and boring. And of course, politicians can see it as uh, intrusive um, or liable to trip them up. And then there's a second question about whether there's a growing use of commercial confidence to refuse to answer FOI requests. What do you do about this this culture of government, which the IFG has um, written about extensively, uh, just an amazing glue-like reluctance to um, issue forth these things. And, and you know, in terms of opposition, governments love FOI and governments of the day hate FOI. Um, I think freedom of information is embedded in legislation around the world. And if anything, FOI laws are, are growing in number around the world. So I think freedom of information is here to stay. Um, it's like a wristwatch or an Apple watch or wallpaper. I think we can expect that it's going to be here. Transparency is important. But as I said in my opening remarks, I think freedom of information is under significant challenge right now, not just because the oversight is, um, again, we. We've had cutbacks in the in the budget, our own budget to oversee freedom of information in in the last 10 years. So there's there's that issue. But I think what the government needs to do, if they really want to change the culture, then senior officials and ministers need to walk the talk. And I think that would set the culture. So, I mean, there are some leaders and permanent secretaries and others that walk the talk when it comes to the importance of transparency. But my recommendation about debating what is the public record and what are the responsibilities of officials and ministers is really, really important, mm. especially in a world of transitory communication. Yep. And thanks very much in, in, in indeed for that. Um, let's see, okay, we've got about two minutes left. Um, there is a, a batch saying, what is the best advice you would give to your successor? Um, money, law and courage. I think those are the three elements that a commissioner needs and you need the resources to be able to do the work. You need the law that has the right powers 
and the right processes to be able to take on the challenges of big tech, for example. And then the courage and the judgment, because you, because all of us have limited resources, you have to have the courage to do the big files. And what has worked for our office is that we've taken an ecosystem approach to our regulation. And that means instead of playing whack-a-mole with one company at a time, we actually look at the whole ecosystem. So think of the work that we did in data and democracy, where we didn't just look at Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, but we looked at platforms and data consultancies mm -hmm. and, and data brokers and political parties, because you have to understand the whole system to, to make meaningful change. So law, money, and courage. I think John Edwards is going to, he's going to inherit an incredibly strong team and a fairly well-resourced um, and uh, regulator with a, a good toolkit of a dual, a good toolkit to be able to take it on. Thank you for that and that question. And it's clearest forms from Catherine Walters. Thank you for that. I've got one tiny factual one. Someone said you can see said we can see quarterly reports for breaches posted. What is the website name? Our website. So it's it's your website. It's our website. Sorry, the ICO website. Yes. Yeah. So thank you for that factual question. But that is all we have time for. We have lots more uh, terrific conceptual, uh, legal, moral, uh, practical questions there, but we can't get to them. Thank you very much though for asking them. Thank you for joining us. And Elizabeth, thank you very, very much indeed. And um, very best of luck for your next step. Thank you. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.